John chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. 12 through 24. And as you turn there, let us go to the Lord in prayer, asking His blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we know that Your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a guide unto our path. We know that Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that Your law is like honey to us, that it is sweet to our souls. We know that Your Word is a mirror that reveals to us our sin. We know it is a guide for our path. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that You might bless the reading and preaching of Your Word, that You might use it in all the ways that You have intended it, and accompany it by the blessing of Your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from John 14, 12-24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen? Amen. Zachary, where is Zachary? He's hiding from me now, I said his name. Zachary is a welder. Rachel, there's Rachel, is a realtor. Bobby is a CPA. The world needs CPAs. Thank you for doing that, Bobby. My wife is a professional mother. Michelle is a CSI laboratory brainiac scientist. Danielle is a nursing instructor. 
Dave and Michelle Dumpy are professionally retired. <laughs> They're pretty good at it, too. John is a pharmacist. So many, of other, uh, so many of you who are here, it's a joy to get to know your work and the, the joy that you find in the work that you do. But there's one thing that all of you are, are called to do. It's, there's one thing that all of you are. All of you are preachers. Now, I know what you're thinking here for a moment. Let me give some qualifications on that. You're not preachers in the sense that you pastor a church. And you're not preachers in the sense of going to seminary and getting ordained. And you're not preachers in the sense that you stand behind a pulpit and preach to a congregation. But you are preachers to yourself. You and I are called to preach God's promises to ourselves. In John chapter 14, this is the farewell discourse of Jesus. And He is preparing His disciples. He is preparing the church for His departure. The cross is before Him and He will soon go to the cross. He will be resurrected from the dead and He will ascend up into heaven. And He needs he wants, should say, his disciples need, and he wants his disciples to be ready. And he wants them to understand the promises that they have in him. And so he tells them in verse 1, you can look there in your Bibles, let not your hearts be troubled. The command here, the exhortation of Jesus here is, hey listen, don't just think about bad things. Stop thinking about bad things. Nearly impossible to do, isn't it? Instead, they are to replace their trouble with the promises of God by preaching the promises of God to themselves. When I was in seminary, in preaching class, I was taught that a sermon can do one of four things, or all four things at different times. What does the text mean? You explain it. What difference does the text make? You apply it. Is the text true? You prove it. And what do people already know and need to be reminded of? And so you remind people of what the text has to say. We have to do this to ourselves, don't we? We have to explain, prove, apply, and remind God's promises to ourselves. When you wonder what they mean, you go to God's Word and you explain God's promises to yourself. And when you doubt God's promises because of objections in your mind, you go to God's Word and you prove them to yourself. When you wonder their significance for your own life, you go to God's Word and you apply them to yourself. And when you just want to hear God's sweet promises to you over and over and over and over again, you go to God's Word and you remind them to yourself. You take God's promises and you preach them to yourself. And that's the way Jesus is instructing His disciples to let not their hearts be troubled. It's not just a 
passive action that the disciples are to take. There's an active role for them. They are to take Jesus' promises and press them down upon their hearts and preach them to themselves. Last week, we looked at two of those in John chapter 14. The promise of eternity. Jesus has told them, in my Father's house are many rooms. This is the promise of heaven. They're to preach that promise to themselves. And then also, we looked at the promise that Jesus is sufficient revelation for us when our, our faith is weak. That we look to Him and He fully reveals the Father to us. I'd like to look at a couple more here in this passage, and we'll see how many of these we get through this morning. I'd like for us to look at the third promise in this passage. When you're troubled by your weak testimony, what you need to do is preach the promise of greater works to your heart. Look with me at verse 12. Notice what Jesus says where He gives the promise that His disciples will do what? Look at verse 12. They will do greater works. Now that's pretty astounding, isn't it? Because Jesus did some really great works, didn't He? Jesus in the Gospel of John doesn't just do works, He does signs. Signs that He is the Messiah. He, what are some of those signs? He fed the 5,000. He turned the water into wine. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. So is what Jesus is saying here is that the disciples will do greater works than what Jesus has done? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Or is Jesus saying that they'll do more in number? So in that way, they will do greater works because Jesus was only alive uh, with them uh, in His ministry, His public ministry for three and a half years. And so is what Jesus is saying is that they will do more in number and therefore greater works than Jesus. Or is Jesus saying that because there is a large number of them and that all of them collectively together will do greater works than what Jesus is doing? I don't think it's any of those, by the way. Let me tell you what I think it is. What Jesus is saying is that the works that they do will be greater in perspective. They'll be greater in perspective. Notice why. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Why, Jesus? Verse 12. Because I am going to the Father. The works that the disciples will do, they will do in light of the life and death and crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be a witness in and of themselves, a weak witness of Jesus, but they will be empowered by Jesus in light of all that Jesus has done, all that Jesus has taught, and Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, that when they share the Gospel, they will do so with such clarity because Christ has come and made a full atonement for sin. That's how their testimony is going to be greater. That's how their works are going to be greater. They will be greater in clarity. They will be greater in 
perspicuity because what they're doing, they're doing in light of the work of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that in the Gospel of John, even people who were eyewitnesses to the miracles of Jesus, the signs of Jesus, even those who heard firsthand the teachings of Jesus, even Judas Iscariot, who was a disciple of Jesus, lacked faith in Jesus. But with Jesus going to the Father, it creates a full picture that those who are weak witnesses have the opportunity to display Christ and the full measure of Christ in all His life, in all His teaching, in His death, in His resurrection, and in His ascension. It's greater in perspective, is what Jesus is saying. And so, He tells them the way that this is going to come about in verse 13. This is going to come about through their prayer. Look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. This is the way they're going to glorify God. That just as Jesus came and He glorified the Father by bearing witness to His Father, so now those who are Jesus' disciples bring glory to the Father. And just as Jesus prayed in communion and fellowship with the Father, and the Father enabled Jesus by the power of the Spirit to bring glory to God, so too now Jesus' disciples, as they pray to Jesus, their high priest, glorify the Father as Jesus empowers them and enables them to be His witnesses. So this is not a promise, I hate to disappoint you, if you think that this verse is about winning football games and, and being able to ask for a bigger house or, sorry Tim Tebow, you know, uh, Jeff, that was a jab, I'm sorry. Tim Tebow, Florida football games. Anyway, this is not a promise about winning football games. This is a promise from Jesus of having a greater witness for Christ. And we're to do this, we're to receive this power through what? Jesus says, through prayer. Evangelism without prayer is like a power tool with a drained battery. It's ineffective. Evangelism without prayer is like a car without gas in the tank. It's ineffective. It won't, it won't get you anywhere. Evangelism without prayer is like a bullet without gunpowder. It won't shoot, will it? Evangelism without prayer is like a sermon without a scripture. It's ineffective. It's, it's not very effective at all, is it? What Jesus is saying here is that the way that our evangelism is fueled, the way that our evangelism is empowered, the means that He has ordained that we might receive the strength that we need to share our witness for Jesus is by prayer. Isn't it interesting that Jesus lived a life of prayer? Here He is, fully God, fully man, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, and yet Jesus, time and time again, goes to His Father in prayer. Jesus was 
fully dependent upon the Spirit's power. He was fully dependent upon his Father, guiding and leading and directing every decision, every word, every miracle, every single thing. And he demonstrated that dependence upon the Father through what? By being in constant prayer. The fatalist will say there's, there's no need to pray to God because God is going to do whatever He's going to do anyway, and so there's no reason for me to pray. Have you ever felt that way? Sometimes I've felt that way, right? There's no reason for me to pray. There's no reason for me to go to God because God is sovereign. He's going to do whatever He wants to do anyway, and my prayers are useless. Scripture doesn't teach that. The open theist will say that my prayers are necessary in order to change God's mind. God doesn't always know what He should do, the open theist will say. God doesn't always know what's going to happen, the open theist will say. And so, our responsibility is to help God out a little bit. And so, we go in prayer and pray to God so He'll understand and know about the things that are happening down here, and that way, he won't be caught off guard. The Reformed position, the Orthodox position, is that God has ordained and decreed not only whatsoever will come to pass, but that God has also decreed the means by which it comes to pass. God has decreed and ordained that your prayers, your weak and insufficient prayers and mine, He has ordained them as a means to bring about and accomplish His will. I remember reading a book by R.C. Sproul, and Sproul saying, wondering at a certain point, uh, I wonder if that person that, that is not a Christian yet, I wonder if they're elect. I wonder if there's any need to share the gospel with them. I mean, what if they're not elect? Why should I even bother if they're not elect sharing the gospel with them because it won't do them any good? Should I even pray for them? It was interesting, his answer to that question was that if you have a burden for them, you should pray for them because God has ordained the prayers of the saints as a means to bring about His will. Now this is the infinite wisdom of God, isn't it? That He is all apart, separate from us, not dependent upon the creature in any way, shape, or form. And yet God is so mysterious in His sovereign will that He has ordained our prayers to bring about and accomplish them. What has God been calling you to pray for lately? Do you feel like your witness for Him is weak at times? You know, you ought to pray about that. You ought to pray and ask that the Lord would make your witness effective for Him. You ought to pray and ask that the Lord would change the heart of the person to whom you need to witness to. Has not Jesus promised us, dear Christian, in this passage that we will do greater things than He has done because He is going to the Father? 
And when you doubt and when you feel like your testimony is so weak that it is completely useless to God, you need to preach the promises of Jesus to your troubled heart. You need to remind yourself of what Jesus has promised you in this passage. That you will do greater works than He has done because He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father and He is interceding for you and for me. That's a good promise, isn't it? Let's look at another promise in this passage. When you're troubled by weak assurance, I want you to see here the promise of perseverance. When you're weakened and troubled by weak assurance, I want you to see here the promise of perseverance. Look with me here at verse 16, at the promise of Jesus. What does He say here in verse 16? Look at the promise. I will ask the Father, and what will the Father do? He will give you another helper. The word here is often transliterated in Greek as paraclete. You've often heard that word, that Greek word, paraclete, in association with the Spirit. English translations are uncertain of how to accurately translate this word. Should it be translated as helper? Should it be translated, as some Bibles have it, as advocate? Or maybe counselor? Or maybe comforter? And there's a case to be made, I think, that the word should just be translated as paraclete. That what Jesus is as a companion to His disciples in His earthly ministry, the Spirit is to those who follow Christ after He ascends to heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here. That just as He has physically been with His disciples in His life and ministry, so now He promises to give them another one like Him of similar kind. That the Spirit will abide with that person. And so look what Jesus says here in verse 16. This isn't temporary, Jesus is saying. Jesus' life and ministry was temporary here on earth, but not the Spirit's work. I'll ask the Father, He'll give you another helper, another paraclete, another comforter, another counselor. And guess what He will be? He will be with you for how long? Forever, Jesus is saying. The work of the Spirit will accompany you throughout your life. This is not temporary, is what Jesus is saying. He will be with you. He will accompany you. Well, who is this Jesus? Jesus explains verse 17. Who is the Spirit? The Spirit of truth. Now, Jesus has identified Himself in this chapter as what? The way, the truth, and the life. All truth is found in Jesus. But He's promising here to send the Spirit another like Him of similar kind. And who is this? This is the Spirit of truth who bears witness and bears testimony to the life and the ministry and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just as the Son brings glory to the Father, so now here we see a full Trinitarian theology that Jesus is beginning to develop. The Son brings glory to the Father 
And now the Spirit does what? He brings glory to the Son. That's His work in our life. And Jesus here is going to expound upon that even more throughout the rest of this chapter. But suffice it now to say that what Jesus is promising here is the promise of perseverance. The Holy Spirit is here for us as Christians. The Holy Spirit is a companion to us as Christians. The Holy Spirit is a counselor for us as Christians. The Holy Spirit is here as a comforter to us as Christians. And so Jesus continues here that the world does not know Him. So what's Jesus saying? The Holy Spirit is not just the Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, but the Spirit is a Spirit. The world is completely material, is what Jesus is saying. The world thinks that it can only accept that which it can touch and see and hear. But what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that the world doesn't know the Spirit. The world can't receive the Spirit because, verse 17, it neither sees Him nor knows Him. The world is fleshly, is what Jesus is saying. But you, on the other hand, those of you who have been born again by the Spirit, you can receive Him. You know Him. For He dwells with you and will be what? In you. This is the promise being fulfilled that Scripture says that, that this is a new epoch of history in which God the Father is pouring out His Spirit upon all flesh. Jew and Gentile, Christian alike, that all of them might reflect the glory of God through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. One of the ways that the New Testament speaks about the work of the Spirit is as a seal. Now, I've talked about this before, especially when I preach through the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation talks about sealing those who are elect. And I used that analogy uh, about a year ago, actually, about this stamp that I have in my office. And I like to take this stamp, it has my name on it, and I like to take this stamp, and every time I receive a new book, I like to do two things. Jonathan does this too. He likes to do this too. If you ever see Jonathan with a new book, the first thing he does is what? Tell us, Jonathan. You might as well. Confession's good for the soul. He likes to smell it. New book smell, right? I mean, is there anything greater than new car smell and new book smell? So the first thing that you have to do with a new book is you have to smell it. New book smell is wonderful. And the second thing that I like to do with a book is what? Not taste it. <laughs> Stamp it. Mark it. Seal it. So that wherever that, book's tra wherever that book travels and to whomever I loan that book, I'm talking to some of you, There's an identification of ownership in that book. That I can go to the front page and there at the front page of that book is a seal, my seal, that authenticates that the book belongs to who? 
to me. And the way that the New Testament speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit in our life is that He is a, he is a seal. Where God stamps upon our hearts and our lives His ownership upon us. Listen to some of these passages in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21-22 through 22, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His what? His seal. He's put a seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians is that the work of the Holy Spirit, it is an identification marker for us as Christians that we belong to God. That's what Paul's saying here. So that every time we wonder about how weak our assurance is, the Holy Spirit is there to bear witness, to bear testimony to us that we belong to God. That we are His property. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 1 is that the work of the Holy Spirit, it is the promise of God to seal us, to mark us, to identify us to ourselves and to God that we are God's property. And that this is placed upon us, this mark of God by the Spirit is placed upon us until the day of what? Until the day of redemption is what Paul's saying. That the work of the Holy Spirit, the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, is to help us because in and of ourselves, our assurance is so weak. Our grasp upon God is so frail. But what the Holy Spirit does is He enables us in this life to persevere until we reach the promise that God has for us in heaven. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Paul says. That's the great day when Christ comes, when He returns. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to seal us, to mark us, to help us identify that we belong to God. And the interesting then that sacraments... You knew I was going to talk about sacraments. Sacraments are called what? A sign and seal of the covenant of grace. This is why baptism is so important to us. Baptism is called a seal. So just as the Holy Spirit is a stamp upon our hearts, baptism is a stamp upon our bodies. That we are God's property. That God has made promises to us. 
and that He will make good on those promises that He has made. This is why when we administer a baptism, it's a means of grace not only to the person who receives the baptism or not only to whom the baptism is administered, but it is a means of grace to you, dear Christian. The, the divines, they call it improving upon your baptism. That when you witness a baptism, you are to remind yourself of your baptism. You are to improve upon your own baptism. You are to be reminded that God has put His mark upon you, dear Christian. And His promises will be fulfilled in your life. Every time I minister a baptism, Rob Shepherd cries. Why? He's improving upon his baptism. Rob, do you remember your baptism? Now wait a minute. Why is witnessing a baptism so precious and near to, and dear to you even though you don't remember it? Because you were baptized when? As a baby. And so what we're doing in the baptism of a child, what we're doing in the baptism as a, as of an infant is what we're saying is that this dear, precious little child, God in His wisdom has given that child into this body of Christ. God has given that child into this covenant family. Have you ever wondered why there's so many children sitting in church in worship? You might feel like at times you get distracted by them because my kids, like some of yours, like to wiggle and they squirm in their seats and sometimes they cry and parents have to stand up and take their kids to the back of the room and, and try and discipline their kids. And poor little Cecilia, when we were at our old church, I used to take her to the bathroom and spank her when she'd misbehave and bring her back to church. But just as you receive your children at your dinner table so too we receive children in worship because they're part of the family of this church. They get included. God's promises are for them too. They need to hear the gospel preached and proclaimed to them too. And you might say, well listen, a child can't understand God's promises to them. Well, can I tell you, you and I don't always understand God's promises to us. And isn't it the work of the Spirit in our hearts to convince and convert us just like the Lord does with a child. And so baptism is so important because it is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace that God has made to us. And might I add, when you study Scripture, the children were always included. They were always given the sign of the covenant all throughout the Old Testament the children were given the sign of circumcision as a promise to them. And so it would stand to reason now that under the administration of the new covenant, the sign of baptism, the seal of baptism is given to the children. Why? Because they're included in the covenant body. And they need to know, that dear child needs to know, they need to be reminded God has put His mark on you. You may be rebellious right now. 
You may not want to go to church right now, but God has put His mark upon you. And just as you are part of this family with our last name, you are part of the family of God. And you need to be reminded of His promises where God puts His seal and His mark upon us. What a blessing this is for us as Christians. That when our assurance feels so weak, when we doubt God's promises, there is the work of the Spirit as a seal, as a mark upon our lives and upon our hearts that God's promises are not just true, but that they are true for us personally. Let me ask you this morning what you have been preaching to your heart. What have you been preaching to yourself? Have you been preaching to yourself doubt about God's promises? Have you been preaching to yourself about your own weak assurance? Have you been preaching to yourself about your own weak testimony? And if you have been, let me encourage you this morning to preach the promises of God to your heart. Because you and I need to hear them over and over again. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank You for Your Word. How we thank You for the promises that You have given to us. And Lord, we pray that You might ever remind us of what You have promised us that, that it would encourage our hearts when we're weak. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.